Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Martellaro, and this week my guest is programmer, author, and podcaster, Rosemary Orchard. Rosemary, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. It's great to have you on the show. I've seen some good things about you. I watched your podcast with with Chuck Joyner, and it was glorious, and I couldn't wait to have you on the show and, and profile you and let the listeners get to know you better. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed being on Chuck's show as well. He's great, isn't he? Oh, he is. Such a lovely guy. So for the listeners, Rosemary Orchard is a geek, self-described nerd and programmer. She works full-time as a development of web applications, but her real loves are automation and productivity. She's also a book author and a podcaster. She resides in the UK. So Rosemary, tell me about growing up. I'm curious about how you got into computers and programming. Uh, Well, it was fairly simple to start with. The first computer that I remember, I was not allowed to touch um, because this was back in the days of the floppy disks where you had to insert the floppy disk to load the program and then eject the floppy disk and then insert the floppy disk to load the document. And then you had to do that in reverse um, afterwards. And so I was under strict instructions not to touch it. um, And I didn't. Um, There were dust covers on top of that. So I. What kind of computer was that? I I really don't remember. I did. I've asked my parents. They don't know either. Um, but because I wasn't allowed to touch this one, I was given one of those VTech children's laptops where you had to like fill in the gaps in the in the words and so on, which actually taught me how to type um, a little bit, not a lot. But I had a vague familiarity with the whole QWERTY layout, and that was one of those VTech machines, um, and and that was great fun. And then my parents got, I think this might have been in 1998 or so, one a tiny computer, a misnomer because this was a massive desktop machine with a CRT monitor and so on. But this was the point where I actually got to play with computers. And there was a very simple rule. If I broke it, I had to fix it. So I had great funds doing things like changing the desktop background and, you know, drawing things in paint. But then it had to be the way it was when was I started this a using PC the computer. Or a Mac? This was a PC. We did not have a Mac. Um, and I, I got my very first Mac when I was at university. I had previously been using a Toshiba machine and the battery life was a grand total of of 19 and a half minutes because I timed it Uh, and it was awful. I mean, it was a a very good machine running windows Vista, um, I believe. Um, and you know, as far as machines went, it was pretty good. I just was fed up with the fact that it had a 19 and a half minute battery life and I couldn't take it to class to type my notes on. So I went to the Apple store, um, and bought a MacBook air and that's, that was my very first, uh, Mac and I loved it. I already had an iPod touch, which I really liked. Um, and a couple of other iPods. I had the, the, uh, the video, um, which was great. And then years later, I got the Classic, which was another great device. But that's how I got started with computers, really. Backing up a second, it sounds like your parents were fairly technical. Well, relatively technical. My dad always describes himself as not very good with computers. But then I look at the fact that he organizes all of his photos using Adobe Bridge um, and edits them all with um, Photoshop. And he updates all of his contacts and calendars. um, And he builds like greetings cards and stuff to print them out. Um, And he's the one asking me, hey, Time Machine hasn't backed up in a couple of days. Like, what have I done wrong? So I'm there (laughs) going, I think actually that you are pretty good at computers. You just don't trust yourself as much as you maybe should. Um, My mom is. Yeah. Sorry. 
My, my mom's also quite techy, though, uh, especially um, we've both been working from home recently. Um, and every so often she's had to come and say, I think I'm doing something stupid. Like, what? What? It, why is this not working? Because her, her work's technical support is unfortunately um, not available right now. Um, they're doing some restructuring at the office and these people have lost their phone access, which makes doing tech support kind of difficult. Um, so um, I, I've helped her out a couple of times there. But yeah, they're, they're both pretty tech savvy. Did you learn to program early on or did you start programming at the university? So I actually started programming really in between degree programs. So I first studied languages at university and here in the UK. Um, and I Human taught languages. English. Yeah, human languages, like French and German, um, with some Spanish and Italian, um, because I had to choose uh, extra electives. And I thought, why not more languages? That seems like a good idea. It was a great idea until I had four language exams in the same day for four different languages. <laughs> that that did not go so well. They, they, they let me retake some of those, fortunately, because I did not do as well as anybody would have liked. Um, but yeah, and so I, I taught English as a foreign language for a while, and I decided that I was kind of fed up with the admin side of teaching, and I wanted to do something where I could make something that people would use, ideally do something that would make people's lives easier, but also where I would not have to deal with quite as much paperwork for each hour of actual work that I did. Um, and so I decided that I, I would like to look in, into programming. And at this time, there was this app called Workflow running around. Um, and there were a lot of people solving like computery type problems with Workflow. And it was on my iPhone. And of course, you know, you have your iPhone everywhere with you pretty much. Um, and so I started building programming things with workflow. And I thought, actually, this isn't that hard. I think maybe I could learn how to program. So I did a couple of programming tests, you know, like whether or not I could actually follow basic tutorials and figure out how things work. Semicolons at the end of lines confused me because Python didn't have them, but JavaScript did. Um, and that was like, okay, like I need to figure that out. So workflow is like Pythonista. It supports the uh, So workflow is now... Well, workflow nowadays is called shortcuts, but it was the idea of putting the blocks together to get it to do things. And then I thought, well, you know, like, how, how, what is, what are, what are these blocks really? Because a block in shortcuts, as it now is, is very similar to a line or a function in programming. Um, and when I found that out and figured it out, I was there going, you know, actually, I really want to learn like how this stuff works and make my own apps. I have still not made my own iOS app from scratch, uh, aside from a couple of the, the test ones from the Swift tutorials. Um, but it, it's something that I, I decided that I just really enjoyed. So I started doing a second degree um, in programming um, in Vienna, actually, because it was very cheap to study there. The caveat was it was in German. Um, but I figured that that could only work out well long term for me. <laughs> so, if you learned yeah. computer programming, you must have had to learn a formal computer language. Yes. Um, and for that, we learned Java. Um, and that was great fun. Uh, Java is an interesting language. I don't it use it nowadays very much. Um, but the, the variable typesetting um, and just the fact that you have to learn to program with a proper programming language was great. Um, recursive functions did completely and utterly blow my mind for the first couple of months. And I was there, I really don't understand this. And then one day it just clicked that it calls itself until you tell it not to call itself. How about um, Java as a programming language for objective? For objects, well, you know, uh, 
I mean, I never got that far in Java. Like we did do some inheritance and so on, and I thought it was very good. But the thing with studying programming at a university is you don't necessarily like make whole projects and really learn the language. You learn the theories that apply to all of the languages. So I, I then started, I solved a problem that we had at work. We needed a package tracker. So I built a package tracker. I started writing it in Java and my boss at the time said, well, it's going to run on a server and it's going to need a HTML front end. Can you do that in PHP? And so I Googled what is PHP Aww. and sort of went from there. So nowadays I mostly program in PHP, but every so often I look at Java and go, yeah, I, I still understand this. You know, I, I don't, programming it day to day but when whenever java code comes my way then I, I i can still look at it and figure it out and enhance it as needed i went to college had a big discussion about what a beginning programming language should be and they, they used c for a while then they thought maybe it should be java and they finally settled on python as the mm. best way to introduce young students to the art and science of programming well, I, I do like Python. I program a lot more in Python nowadays because I can program on iOS using Pythonista, um, which I, I take my iPad everywhere. So it's nice to have a programming language that I can actually compile on my device. Um, but it's also, um, I, I find that maybe for a beginner's language, Python is not such a great choice because it's very different to the way that other languages work, like using the colon in indentation to mark if statements, um, yeah. where Whereas other languages use those curly braces and indentation is not as important. Of course, there are some cases where indentation is crucial in a programming language or markup language. But I know, I know. That's what upsets me about Python. I prefer yeah, Perl, yeah. but Perl's dying. Perl is great, though. I mean, regular I expressions pretty much come from Perl, and I love regex. It's, I it's great. I've Perl for years and years, and it's a great language. But it kind of fell behind because Python made that big break at 3.0. Yeah, and yeah. Perl never made the break, and uh, kind of stagnated. Yeah, yeah. But I've got a lot of friends. I have a friend Ryan who recently wrote some Apple Script, and uh, he messaged me and he said, "Is it still Apple Script when your Apple Script is and run this Perl Script?" Um, I, I decided uh, on his behalf that it was indeed still an Apple Script because the Apple Script was doing something. Uh, but yeah, Perl's Perl's got a special place in many programmers' lives. When you bought your MacBook Air, did you start messing around with Apple Script? Just curious. I did a little bit because actually one of the reasons why I bought my first Mac was because of Doug scripts and all of these Apple scripts that you could run in iTunes. Um, and I, yeah. And I was just in love with the idea that you could have all of these scripts do these different things for you. Um, and so I played around with those a lot and I broke all of the scripts, every single one of them <laughs> multiple times. I don't know if I ever actually modified one back then and made it work differently for me, um, but um, I, I, I definitely played with them, um, and I, I, I enjoyed that, though mostly I was still at the stage where it was like, hmm, like, do I want to open the terminal and run this command to make the hidden applications in my dock translucent? Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, copy and paste this command from the internet have my doc disappear, restart my machine and find out that no, it's still not there. Um, you know, that was the kind of not really programming, but hacking that I was doing. Do you credit your early days with the MacBook Air to lead you into the iPhone? Absolutely. Yes. Um, though, my dad definitely helped push me off of that little cliff as well. So I got a, an iPod Touch when the first iPhone was announced because there was no way I could afford the first iPhone. Uh, I had just left school and was going to, to university. Um, so 
you know, I had student loans and so on. So I had practically no income um, and all of the expenses. Um, and so I, I got an iPod Touch and I got I, some little black touchscreen phone. that It wasn't running Android because that didn't exist. Um, or maybe it, it existed, but it, it wasn't like popular um, uh, and the standard operating system on non-Apple on, on phones. So I had some random touchscreen phone um, and my iPod Touch, and that was great. And then my dad decided that he wanted an iPhone 3GS. So he got the black one and I got the white one. And that was when I kind of fell in love with iOS as an operating system because the 3GS was a great phone. It was, I really loved, you know, like the round back um, and everything on it. Um, And then my mom got one as well. Uh, And so we then became the iPhone family. It's amazing Uh, how small they are. I have an original iPhone that I bought in 2007 in the bookcase, sort of a little electronics museum. Every once in a while I pull it out and it is so tiny compared to my 10S Max. I can't believe it. Yes. Well, I had I had the 10s Max as well, and then I decided that actually for uh, for the 11, which I've now got now, I was just going to go with the 11 Pro because I love the screen space on the Max, but it's yeah. just so big. And yeah. women's clothing does not have pockets. This is a pet peeve of mine. And if it does have pockets, finding women's clothing with a pocket that will fit a Max phone, <laughs> Killing you're your looking for a unicorn. <laughs> um, so um, what I what I did is I I, I found that some of my dresses have pockets big enough to fit like the 10s as it was back then but not my 10s max and so it was like okay so next time i'm getting the 10s size and that's how i got the 11 pro i measured my pockets so how did you get interested in automation so much i mean so do you sort of you sort of edged around the the, the, the story with ios yeah. but but what really triggered this the scripting and automation fantasy. I mean, it really does go back to workflow, which is now shortcuts because people, there there was a very popular subreddit for workflow. Um, There's now a very popular subreddit for shortcuts. Obviously it's a different subreddit with a different name. Um, And people were posting there, you know, like, Hey, like, how do I do this? And I was just playing with these things, you know, every morning on my way to the university, I'd be there on my phone, waiting for the tram, pulling things together, posting them back to people. Um, And I just, really loved the fact that you could, you know, put these things together that would make somebody's life easier. Um, And a lot of those cases I found were actually people with accessibility needs where they just needed like a one button thing to say, to have it send a message to somebody to say like, I'm okay. Um, or uh, I need milk or something like that. And, you know, the people were then putting these shortcuts on the home screen of their devices um, or somebody else's device. So it could be run, you know, with just two taps um, to make somebody's life easier. And I just loved that idea. Um, And it kind of snowballed from there. Cool. Well, we'll talk more in the second half of the show about shortcuts and uh, some of your other work. But first, we have to take a short break. Folks, I'm chatting with Rosemary Orchard, We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI, CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. Built using the most up-to-date hardware and a next-generation network backbone, Linode allows users to comply with in-country data protection requirements while taking advantage of all of Linode's technology and tools. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy, 
robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are a native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers. And pay for only what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash bgm. That's l-i-n-o-d-e dot com forward slash bgm. All new customers receive a $20 credit. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with Rosemary Orchard. So I want to talk about shortcuts for a short time. Mm-hmm. So tell me about iOS shortcuts on the phone. Can kind of give us a thumbnail for the listeners who are not really accustomed to or familiar with shortcuts. Well, shortcuts are one of these things that are built into iOS, and you may have seen them and you don't actually know. Like when it pops up on your home screen, like, would you like to get directions to this location? Um, That's possibly because you drive there every day or every week, and then you leave there and you go home or to a specific location from there. Um, And this is actually using a framework underneath all of iOS, which helps you build shortcuts, and any app can do this. Um, and so a shortcut can just be as something as simple as, you know, something that you might do regularly, say adding milk to your grocery list, or it could be something considerably more complex that you could actually build for yourself inside of the shortcuts app. Um, and a shortcut is at its essence, one or more actions that does something for you. Now, what that something is, of course, varies massively depending on a shortcut. So, a reading mode shortcut might turn on, do not disturb. It might put your device into dark mode and then open uh, the Books app or the Kindle app, depending on your preference. Or a, a more complex shortcut that I use actually queries a database on the internet inside of Airtable, looking for projects that have been assigned to me, um, and then takes those and creates a series of notes in drafts and then takes the IDs of those drafts and sends them back to the database for me. Um, and so a, a shortcut is a programming concept, but it's done with visual blocks. So you don't need to start typing um, if this action does, if this database entry doesn't have anything in this record, um, in this record field, then please do this. You so you can drag do in branches. If. So yeah. Do so if statements. Yeah, so you can you can just drag in an if, and then you put the actions that you want to happen inside of that if, and it, oh, nice. it just works. Um, of course, you need to understand it a little bit to, to, to do that. Um, but at the same time, there's also a gallery inside of Shortcuts, which contains two things that are really helpful. First of all, it has shortcuts from your apps, which is your apps are sitting there watching what you do. And they tell iOS what you do. Um, and how often you do it, and where you do it, and when you do it. And that's back to what I said previously about when you leave a place and it shows up and says, would you like to get directions to that place? That's one of those actions. There's a shortcut from your app. And you can add those and give it a name, and then you can call it through Siri. Um, And so you can say, hello, lady in the can, please can you X, Y, Z assuming the name of your shortcut is please can you xyz um so you give it a name and then you use that to talk to it um but you can also then view these and see what actually happens inside of it these will just be one action but it's a good place to start 
But inside of the gallery, there are also much more complex shortcuts, like the reading mode I mentioned. That's actually a shortcut in the gallery. I know you've written a book about it, but I want to talk about that in just a minute. But tell me about how Apple teaches you to use shortcuts. Is there a tech note or a, a page on shortcuts that t- uh, teaches people? If, if your book didn't exist, how would people learn shortcuts? Well, I would actually say if people didn't learn shortcuts, then just playing around on iOS might be a pretty tricky way to learn shortcuts. But if you go to Google, then you can find the Apple documentation for shortcuts, where they actually have... It's, it's solid documentation. It's not insanely complex or detailed because shortcuts can do so many different things. You know, if you look at the two examples I had of the the reading mode versus querying things from my from a database and creating drafts notes and sending that back, those are two totally different things at very different levels of complexity. Um, but uh, they're, they're both possible. But the, the documentation from Apple on Apple's website is definitely a great place to get started there. Okay, so you've written a book, Take Control Books. Those are famous. I know lots of authors who've written Take Control Books, and now I can add you to the list. Well, thank you. It was great fun writing it, I have to say. So how long did it take to write a book on uh, shortcuts? Well, it took a little longer than I wanted because um, this, uh, it was originally released, or I started working on it just about when iOS 13 was coming out. Um, But unfortunately, there were some fairly significant changes to shortcuts uh, while I was writing. Um, At one point, um, a whole series of things broke. Uh, Fortunately, this was on the beta, and I verified that on the the public release, everything was working. But we then, of course, had to wait a little bit on that to come back to it. before I could actually continue writing about it, because you can't write about something that doesn't work. Um, or you can write about it, but you can't really publish it unless you know you know it is going to work again. Um, and so it took like three, four months um, to write the book. But of course, this was uh, next to my day job and the podcasting and everything else. So uh, yeah, it wasn't full time. How's it doing? Uh, it's doing really well. Uh, a lot of people have written to me and said that they, they get it now. Um, they, you know, they didn't get it before, and now they actually understand how shortcuts can be useful. Have had one or two people that are are still not really sure. They don't think that the examples in the book are necessarily applicable to them, and that's okay. But it, it's been very well received. Excellent, excellent. Now, your interest in automation has led to the launch of a podcast as well. Called yes. the Automators Podcast, and you're with David Sparks. I've had David on the show. He was delightful. Tell me about yeah. Automators Podcast. Well, the Automators Podcast happened because I wanted to talk to autom- about automation with somebody who understood automation. And there was only one person in my mind that I wanted to, to podcast with, and that was David Sparks. And I was about to email him. He sent me an email pretty much as I was about to hit send, and it was kind of like, okay, we're all the same <laughs> wavelength here. Like, I thought you were going to be the perfect podcast co-host, and you know I'm very pleased to see that's still the case. A couple of years later, we're still doing really well there. He's he's a great co-host, um, and it's great because he thinks of things in a very different way to the way I think about things. You know, I I tend to jump straight into the more complex things, whereas he comes up with a very simple and it works solution. Um, and then together we can we can put that in in one combination, which hopefully gets a good result for our listeners. I was wondering how one sustains an automation podcast every two weeks. Is it possible? Is it strain or is it easy? Are you overflowing with stuff? I mean, I have ideas all the time. The trick is to prepare enough for each podcast episode, because if we haven't prepared for the episode, then, of course, it's really going to show in the content. So uh, an episode that we did, for example, The Daily Brief, both of us had to go away and create 
or modify our daily brief shortcuts. And a daily brief is essentially like Jarvis and Iron Man, where you wake up and then the machine tells you everything it is that you wanted to know about your day. And it only gives you the information that you need to know when it's relevant. So, for example, uh, one of David's examples was um, in the if the surf is high enough, then he actually wants to know about it. But if the surf isn't going to be good enough, then he doesn't care about the surf. So don't tell him about the surf. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, we, we have to go away and actually prepare that and think about that and put that into a document. So it, it is not necessarily a challenge to come up with an idea, but a challenge to come up with an idea and find a way to show, like, showcase it in a way that is going to be useful for our listeners um but we've had some great guests on which really help with that yeah but that was my next question by the way so tell me about some of your uh, recent guests uh well we've had quite a few recent guests um and so one of them was charlie chapman who's the maker of dark noise um and he was great to talk to because he's implemented shortcuts in his app um but his app isn't a shortcuts based app in contrast to another developer we had on recently alex hay who creator of tallbox pro um and his app is all about adding shortcuts actions to shortcuts and so those were two very different people to have on but they also gave us a bunch of ideas to include um for for future episodes okay so now you've written another book called build your omnifocus workflow you are an automation guru i look i looked at your apps page and you have worked with a lot of productivity apps Yes, yes, I have. Um, I I can be a bit of a butterfly where I hop around between apps, but at the same time, I find that you know one app works really well for me in one particular way, um, and just no other app can compete. Now that doesn't mean the other apps aren't good and I won't use them. It just means that for that particular use case, they're there, they're staying put, um, and uh, it, it's nice to be able to to jump around between apps. I will confess, some of that is most definitely procrastination. There is nothing more satisfying than reshuffling things just because you can't. Um, and then going, oh, it's beautifully organized and tidy. And then realizing five minutes later, you have no idea where you put that very important document. <laughs> um, but it's okay. Search function has saved me many of the time. That's one of the reasons why I used Evan Think, actually, because it's got such a great search function when I misfile something. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's great to like try all of these different applications and of course from my perspective if i can automate one of these applications then i'm going to be much much happier how does omnifocus help your workflow i've never used it actually myself well um i wouldn't say that omnifocus helps my workflow i would say omnifocus in many cases is my workflow um so if a task isn't in omnifocus it's not going to happen which means that Everything has to go into OmniFocus somehow. Um, and then from there, I go through my inbox and I put things in projects and or tags, depending on what they need. Um, and then I, I work from there. So the, it has the forecast view, which tells me if anything's overdue. Fortunately, things very rarely wander into that area. Um, and then um, what things are coming up due soon. What things I've marked as I intend to get done today or in the very, very near future, what things I have marked as very, very important, though not necessarily urgent. And then, of course, I have my tags, so I can go through and look at things based on, you know, like, well, I need this machine for that, and I'm not able to access that machine at the moment, so I'm just going to ignore everything with that tag. But right now, I'm sitting in front of my MacBook Air, so what could I do on my MacBook Air or on a Mac generally? Um, or I need to be working on this project, so I'll go in and look at it from a project perspective. Um, it's a very flexible tool. I think it takes a lot of perseverance and a certain frame of mind to be a slave to a tool like that. 
I don't think I could well, do that perhaps. myself. I mean, I, I'm more freewheeling. <laughs> I mean, I've tried the freewheeling system. When I was at university, I had a very simple system of uh, memo block. Uh, so those those memo blocks that you can get, I had one of those pages for each week of the semester. Um, mm. And then under that, uh, and that was going across my wall. And then under each week, I had one memo block uh, for each uh, assignment that was due in that week or each exam. And I color coded them based on subject and type of thing that was due. Um, and that seemed like a great system until I forgot to pay rent. Um, <laughs> turns out I did not actually forget to pay rent. I had set up a bank transfer in advance to pay rent, but I didn't check it. Um, and then I spent about three days panicking because I couldn't get into my online banking. Uh, I was not using one password at that point, but um, you know, I'd, I'd set everything up and I thought it was a great system and it was, it just wasn't actually comprehensive enough to cover everything that I needed. And that was the point where I said, okay, I really need something good here that's going to let me manage everything that's going on in my life in one place. I have to admit, I am a slave to my calendar. That's the one concession I make. Everything is in my Mac calendar. I use, actually, I use a different calendar. I use something called BusyCal. Oh, BusyCal is great. I really like. And that's my life is in BusyCal. So, yeah, I kind of do. I'm not quite that freewheeling. <laughs> I, I find I try and avoid my calendar at times because there are meetings in there that I don't necessarily want to go to. Um, and as much as not paying my rent sounds like a really nice thing to do for my bank account, it does not sound like a great thing to do for homelessness. So no, I, I, I prefer my task manager because it's there going, eh, you just need to do this. I kind of think of it as my own personal system that I don't need to pay on a regular basis. <laughs> well, we're starting to run out of time. I think I have time for another question. So how, tell me how you got into podcasting for those listeners who are interested in possibly starting their own podcast. Tell me about how you learned to do it. Did you have a mentor? Did you study? Uh, did you have somebody who showed you how to do it? How did you get started in podcasting tech? Uh, I remember years ago watching a series by Cliff Ravenscraft, the podcast answer man. He had a podcast called the podcast answer man. Um, I think he still does actually. And he had like a free YouTube series showing, you know, like how you need to record the audio and things like that. I think he was using Adobe audition actually to record the audio. And that gave me a very good basic understanding, um, of, you know, the different parts involved. Um, I, I was very fortunate in that I, um, started with automators and that of course is on the relay fm network and the relay fm folks were very good at helping me out and it was pretty much a case of you want this software audio hijack you want this microphone sure 87a uh you need an xlr interface in my case i went with the zoom h4n pro what drove you towards xlr instead of usb just curious uh, I was told to do this, um, and because oh. I didn't know what I was doing necessarily, I <laughs> okay. thought, I'm just, if, if people tell me to do this, you know, Stephen Hackett, Marco Arman, and all the other people are just like, you want XLR, I'm just going to go with XLR and not question yeah, it. Yeah, but then you get into uh, an audio mixer, and uh, those can get kind of wonky. Yeah, yeah. I use yeah, they, a Rode Podcaster and a USB connection to my Mac Pro, and it works out really well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I could have done that as well. I think I actually did start with an ATR2100, which has both XLR and oh, USB on one. it. Yeah, that's a good um, And it's a very affordable microphone as well. They've just come out with the, the 2100S, which is the USB-C version, uh, which is better than micro USB uh, or mini USB, actually. Um, but I, I, I did what I was told. And the other thing that I knew that I wanted is I knew I wanted the ability to record when I was just working on my iPad without having a Mac involved at all, which uh. is why I went with the XLR and the Zoom because the Zoom has batteries in it and it can work independently. 
um, of any computer. It just runs with a SD card inside of it and saves the data there. And now with sorry, and now with iOS 13, of course, I can I can get all those files off on my iPad and upload them to Dropbox and done. Um, yeah, so I, I, it was mostly Cliff Ravenscraft who who helped me, but there were several po- uh, posts over on Six Colors as well, which really helped me out, you know, figuring out how things work. So I have a rudimentary understanding of how to edit a podcast. Um, I'm fortunate in that I don't need to edit either of my podcasts. In the case of Nested Fullers, my co-host Scotty uh, decided that he wanted to do the editing, um, and I said if he was really happy to do that, then he could do it all. Um, but at the same time, I'm more than willing to do my fair share. But he he wanted to do that. And in the case of Automators, uh, we have a great guy, Jim, who, who does our editing there as well. Great, great. Well, we've run out of time. It's just been a great story you've told us. Thank you. For well, sh- thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on the show and telling me your profile and your story and, uh, and about your interest in shortcuts and automation. It's been great. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. So tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. Well, the easiest place is probably going to be on Twitter. I am at Rosemary Orchard on Twitter. Or if you're looking for any other way to contact me, then just go to my website, rosemaryorchard.com, and there are links everywhere, and also my email address if you want to send me an email. Okay, great. Folks, you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode with John Marchalero and Rosemary Orchard. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>